What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, please consider us as a primary source to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, and we do have listeners all over the world, literally, uh, you'll want to dial 1-205-271-2985. That's uh, just for you folks outside of North America. 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email 24-7. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kaminsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there live right now on this Tuesday afternoon. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number 833 833- 288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you. How's your Advent going? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of early on in Advent. You're trying to do a few extra things Adventy, but, uh, you Good know. for you. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Here's an interesting email from Gabriel. This is a very personal question for you, David. Dr. Anders, recently you mentioned how your evangelical faith prior to your conversion, was making you unpleasant and uncharitable in your thoughts. I really felt that comment. As a seeker, it's been something I have sensed, but have been unable to articulate for a very long time. Do you have any more resources I could explore to investigate this further, and can you elaborate more? Thanks, Gabriel. Yeah, thanks. So let me do the elaboration first, and then I'll talk about the resources. So... Look, I don't want to suggest that Protestants are uncharitable. That's obviously not true. And I grew up in a very wonderful home. I had wonderful, loving parents. I had wonderful, loving grandparents. Uh, I had uh, some very few mentors and models that were very decent people in my life who were charitable individuals. So absolutely, Protestants can be charitable people. But at the at the heart of Prote- of uh, some versions of Protestantism and the Calvinism within which within which I was raised. There is an intense kind of tribal identity uh, with the idea that I'm on the inside and you're on the outside. And in fact, I, I once worked at a at a fundamentalist Bible camp where we sang this song with the children. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll state the lyrics. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? Mm. Like that. I'm on the in and you're on the out. That yeah. was a big part of the tradition. That would make and you kind of smug, wouldn't it? It makes you very smug. And—, and uh, you know, the, the, the Calvinist doctrine of predestination and election and the idea of, you know, the conversion as a psychological moment that you can identify on a map uh, and distinguishing the world between people who have had that kind of psychological experience of conversion and invited Jesus into the heart versus those that haven't, and one group's going to heaven, the other group's going to hell. That, that whole us-them kind of mentality is really woven very, very deeply into the tradition. 
and uh, and motivates uh, a lot of, of their evangelizing and missionary activity. The goal of you know going out there and converting other people and making them like us is a big, big, big part of the tradition. At least it was when I grew up. And um, and you 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 hold that in concert with the idea that morality, however important, and they do think it's important. I don't want to dismiss that morality, however important, is not what constitutes you a child of God. It's not what makes you right with God. It's not the basis. It's not on the basis of morality that you'll be saved. God's not going to let you into heaven because you are a good person. That's very much part of the Protestant system, and so it leads to this, I think, perverse outcome. That if I'm dealing with other human beings, it is ultimately less important that I'm a good person or that they're a good person, mm. and more important that I get them to sign on the bottom line, so to speak, and become a card-carrying evangelical Protestant. At least that they profess Christ in their heart and believe that God raised him from the dead and they have a conversion experience, that sort of thing. That takes priority over the actual pursuit of virtue. And this first came home to me powerfully. When I was in college, I was a Protestant. I went to Wheaton College in Illinois, and I was walking through the uh, Wheaton bookstore, and believe it or not, Wheaton College, yes, Wheaton College, had a book by Mother Teresa. Wow. And I picked it up, and I started reading it. And Mother Teresa told a story about pulling a dying Hindu woman off the streets of Calcutta who was being eaten alive by ants and just suffering terribly, but that her greatest suffering was the knowledge that her son had abandoned her to that state. And so she had deep bitterness and resentment against her child. And Mother Teresa nursed her wounds and cared for her and then in, and loved on her and encouraged her to forgive her son. And before the woman passed, she said, I do, I forgive my son. And she died at peace because she forgave her son. And I remember reading the story and being so impressed by it and, and kind of flabbergasted because it contravened many of the things that I believed as a Protestant, namely that what Mother Teresa should have done was get this woman to profess faith in Christ. And that the fact that she died without letting this woman profess Jesus meant that this woman would go to hell. And so all this forgiving of son's business was of really no benefit if she didn't have Jesus in her heart. Right? That was the way I would have seen that story as a Protestant. And I thought about that and I realized, you know, this is a strange outcome because it means that that I am critical of Mother Teresa for helping this woman, both physically and morally. Mm-hmm. And I think that it would be better, as a Protestant, at some level better to have left her in that pitiable condition, provided I could or could get her to profess Christ. And I thought, that seems perverse to me. And I began to notice ways that those beliefs were causing me to think in a dehumanizing or behave in a dehumanizing way towards others. Uh, when I would proselytize without a regard for an individual's inner life or their social situation or their real felt spiritual or emotional needs, just with an aim to get them to sign the bottom line and get another feather in my cap. And I began to realize that it was making me treat people in an instrumental, uh, objectified fashion. Mm. And I, I thought that was that was really reprehensible. And And so in that respect— my Protestantism was actually making me a worse human being. Wow. Now, d- did I say that it does that to everybody? No. I said that's what it did in me. And so one of the many things that led me to Catholicism was the realization that within the Catholic faith, it really is ultimately about charity. Sure is. Gabriel, thanks for writing to us today on EWTN's Call to Communion. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, and we've got lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to Communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. 
calls are coming in, emails are coming in, YouTube questions are coming in, Facebook questions are coming in. We'd love to hear from you on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. Anders, uh, Dr. David Anders, that is. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. From time to time, you hear us talking about EWTN Media Missionaries. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about some wonderful people, really all over the world, who prayerfully take EWTN to parishes and their community through the print and electronic media that we provide. Now, you can help EWTN share the good news by becoming a media missionary yourself. Here's what to do. Visit EWTNmissionaries.com today. That website, EWTN missionaries.com. Join us in sharing the eternal word with the world. If you're ready now, let's go to the phone at 833-288-EWTN. Let's uh, begin with Rick in Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey, Rick, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, thank you. Uh, um, this is the yes or no question, believe it or not. Okay. But um, the question is, is the following syllogism true. Syllogism is this. If the relationship between Joseph and Mary constituted a sacramentally valid marriage, then, no matter how often they had sex, Mary was still without sin. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Um, I, um, uh, I don't think it's valid, and I'll tell you why. Well, I don't think it's sound. I don't think it's a sound argument. I'll tell you why. Um, it is true that in most cases, sexual relations are expected, in fact required, uh, in, a, in a valid marriage, whether it's sacramental or not. Any valid marriage is, is, is generally speaking, formed uh, with the intention to procreate with some form of sexual cooperation. Um, and that actually can be a cause for nullity. Right, if somebody purports to be married, and then you find out that they entered into the state of marriage with no intention of consummation, uh, and they weren't open to to uh, having children, uh, and then then that can actually be a grounds for annulment. So, under normal circumstances, that's true. But the church does recognize something called a Josephite marriage, which is uh, the union of a man and woman who come together in a, in a kind of marital union. But specifically, it's, it's been agreed upon that they will not consummate the marriage and they're not going to be open to natural generation of children mm-hmm. um, because they, they have some spiritual end in mind. It's called Josephite after the Blessed, uh, after Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph. Now, in this particular case, uh, Mary and Joseph have both taken vows of, of virginity. Well, at least Mary taken a vow of virginity and Mo- Joseph had at least taken a vow of continence, uh-huh. right? And so... It wouldn't have been a sin against one another insofar as they were married, but it would have been to, to break a very solemn vow that they took to God. So I think it would have been sinful, but on other grounds, not the grounds yeah. that they were you know, married or not married. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Rick? Um, somewhat. Is there something we can clear up for you? Um, Let me give you an analogy. This is a really silly analogy, okay? Okay. Um. I um, let's say when I married my wife, I said, um, "Look, I'll marry you, um, but uh, you know, you you only want to live in you know I don't know. Uh, you want to move to Ohio? She doesn't want to move to Ohio. I'm just picking this at random. Sure. And so um, I promise you that if you marry me, we'll move to Ohio. 
Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, and we we get married, and then I say I'm not moving to Ohio. Okay. Right. Well, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with not moving to Ohio, right? But it would be wrong in this case because I was I was violating a vow. Yeah. Right. And uh, and and so, you know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with spouses uh, having sexual relations. In fact, that's what they're normally supposed to do. Yeah. Unless they vowed to one another not to, okay. and vowed to God in a oh. solemn way that's binding. Rick, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three. 288-EWTN, a good time to call because we have three lines open right now. 833-288-3986. Tom listening to us in Twinsburg, Ohio on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Tom. What's on your mind today, sir? What is the morality of lawsuits? I know, I believe I know that St. Paul says we're not to engage in lawsuits, but if somebody grievously wrongs you, are you supposed to say, well, I'll just eat it and live in destitution for the rest of my life because this person cost me half a million dollars and I can't do them to get it back? Is that what the Church says? Thank you. I appreciate the question. The Church uh, does not say that you can never pursue a lawsuit. No, it does not. And when you look at what St. Paul has to say, there's a very specific context. Paul is talking about conflicts between believers in Corinth and the scandal that would emerge if they took their case to the civil court, right? Okay. Uh, And he says, don't you have people in Corinth that are competent to judge these kinds of cases? So he's, first of all, he's not saying categorically you can't go to, go to law. He's, he's advocating if, if there's a way to resolve this by mediation through the church, Mm -hmm. that's preferable. Okay. 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 And, uh, and particularly with respect to the sin of scandal. I think today, in the, in the 21st century, if two people who both happen to be Christians were to go to the civil court and sue one another, um, that would not be particularly scandalous, right, uh, in the way that it was in the first century. Also, to the charge, isn't there someone competent to judge this in your church? I think that very often today we would have to give the judgment, no. <laughs> no, there isn't someone competent to judge this within within the church. Mm. And I'll tell you a historical. Uh, I'll tell you a story. This is a true story. Uh-huh. Uh, in the Catholic Church, we 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 still have church courts, but they don't adjudicate these kinds of cases. We don't adjudicate. The church doesn't adjudicate monetary damages arising out of civil torts. We don't do that anymore at all. There, there used to be a time when the church did, but we don't do that at all anymore. Church courts handle matters only that pertain to ecclesiastical law, I okay? See. And see. there are cases where you can you can file a, a canon law lawsuit against people, mm. and I've known it to happen, right? But but most of these kinds of civil cases would not be brought before a church court. Um, but uh, when I grew up, I grew up a Presbyterian, and Presbyterians are biblicists. They, they want to try to take the Bible very, very straightforward, literally. Uh-huh. And so there was a period early in my life, in, in my home church's history when they attempted to do this. They attempted to adjudicate civil cases between litigants rather than have church members go to law in, uh, in the civil courts. And my father uh, uh, was an attorney, and a very good one, because he had expertise in that area. They asked him, would you serve on the tribunal that, uh, that oversees this kind of litigation and, and seeks to mediate conflict? And I remember my dad was telling me the story and I, I knew where he was going. And I said, wait a minute, let me ask you, let me ask you, before you tell me the end of the story, <laughs> you're getting ready to tell me what happened. And I'm going to guess that the church court told the wounded person to forgive, and they vindicated the criminal. 
And he said, that's exactly what happened. Wow. Right. That's exactly what happened. And so, in other words, there was a, there was a, they had a sentimental criteria, mm. which is that Christians should always forgive. And they forgot about oh. the demands of justice. And yeah. so, in his view, in his view, rather than doing justice, they actually brought about a great injustice. And so he, he went to the pastor of the church and he said, never ask me to serve on one of these things again. I don't want my name tarnished with this kind of, this kind of enormity, this kind of atrocity, right? This, they're, they're not doing justice. So the mm-hmm. answer to the question, were they competent to judge those cases? No, they weren't. They weren't competent to judge them, wow. right? Yeah. And you'd be better off getting justice in the civil court. Um, and so the kind of situation that you've raised, if someone has beggared you, uh, then, uh, then uh, my advice would be go, go get a lawyer, uh, go to court, and try to get some restitution. Tom, thanks so much for your call today from Twinsburg, Ohio, in the greater Cleveland area. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Harold is listening to us in Texas on iHeartRadio. Hello, Harold. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, sir. Um, I want to know, where do you stand, or how do you feel about paying the rosary every day? Thanks, Harold. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So, I think it depends. And the value of any Catholic devotion uh, is, uh, uh, is judged by whether it helps advance you in the life of virtue and charity. That's the criterion. And uh, any Catholic devotion, and for that matter, any Catholic spiritual act, can be can be efficacious, can be powerful, can be edifying, or it can be done superstitiously. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph twenty one eleven, I think, uh-huh. uh, actually says that the sacraments of the Church themselves can be taken in a superstitious manner. So, if it's possible to take Holy Communion superstitiously. Even more so, it's possible to take the rosary superstitiously. And so we can't say of any Catholic act, any devotional act, any liturgical act, that by itself it's necessarily always effective to bring us to holiness. It depends upon our disposition. It's effective in us insofar as we are disposed to seek the truth in charity. Mm. Right? For many people, the rosary has been powerfully efficacious to unite them to Christ through the intercession of Our Lady and helped them to grow in holiness. And if that is the situation, then by all means, dive into the rosary with both feet and pray it all the time. Uh, however, I, I personally have also seen it happen that I'm not going to impugn the rosary, but I've seen, I've seen devotionalists, right, right, that, that have their favorite devotion, who take it in a mechanical and superstitious way as a way of lording it over others, as a way of distinguishing themselves from their neighbors with their with their with their you know self-assertive piety, who don't seem to develop charity or humility or holiness, hmm. I wouldn't say to such people stop that devotion. I would say to them, reframe how you're using it. Reframe how you're using it. Saint Francis de Sales, I think, is a great m- model and instructor in this. His book, The Introduction to the Devout Life, talks about this very thing. In the first few chapters of the Introduction to the Devout Life, St. Francis says, What is devotion? Is it praying the rosary? Is it fasting? Is it alms to the poor? And he says it's none of these things. True devotion is nothing other than the genuine love of God and neighbor. And whatever you can do 
that will bring you to the, gener- to the genuine love of God and neighbor is for you the right devotion, is for you the right spirituality. The church has many devotions, many spiritualities. You find the one in your life that helps you the most to the imitation of Christ. If that's the rosary, go for the rosary. Famously, some saints lived by the rosary. Others didn't like it. Therese of Lisieux, not a big fan of the rosary, right? John Paul II, huge fan of the rosary. Both of them came to holiness. There you go. Harold, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Deborah's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Deborah says, Hi, Dr. Anders. Can you tell me why you chose Catholicism and not Orthodoxy? And if you know the answer here, why do most converts from Protestantism choose Catholicism rather than Orthodoxy? Sure. So several reasons. Um, first of all, I think primarily because I tend to take Christ seriously in Matthew 16 when he talks about the role of St. Peter and the, 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 the patron office in the church, right? That's, the, that's a key Catholic doctrine, that Peter is the rock and he has the keys of the kingdom of heaven and his successors, the bishops of Rome, uh, also possess those keys. So the doctrine of the papacy is, of course, central to Catholic identity. That's, that's not negligible, and I found the biblical and historical arguments for that to be compelling. Um, I also uh, I recognize that there is a there are different ways to be Catholic. That it was open to me to not only be Catholic but to say be an Eastern Rite Catholic. Uh-huh. Maybe I could embrace the spiritual and theological patrimony of the East without renouncing the papacy. And and I know I know Protestants that have converted to Catholicism, but in its Eastern rites. Uh, but I also considered the fact that this is just idiosyncratic to me. I'm a Westerner. Like I'm, I'm part of the Latin patriarchate. Right? Yeah, this yeah. is my culture, and so the, the the heritage of Western civilization is Roman Catholic, and so I, I felt a great affinity to it from an aesthetic and 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 personal dimension as well. So I uh-huh. think doctrinally, I thought that this is the appropriate place for me to be. Okay, but also, but also, um, you know, sort of my heritage spoke to that. The Pope is the is he's the Bishop of Rome and the and the uh, has universal jurisdiction of the entire Church. But he's also the Patriarch of the West, right? Mm, yeah. Um, uh, I also thought that there were some difficulties within Orthodoxy that I think are more or less insurmountable. Uh, from a theoretical point of view, and one of them is I don't think there's a principled way to distinguish between rival claimants to the title orthodoxy. Mm. Right there, there are at least three major schools of orthodox identity. Uh, there's the the Chalcedonian, the non-Chalcedonian, and the and the and the um, and the Nestorian branches of orthodoxy. They all lay claim to the mantle of orthodoxy and apostolicity and tradition. And yet they, they, they can't agree with one another because they don't have the same list of ecumenical councils. And there's just no way to get out of that circle, yeah. right? And, and so without, mm-hmm. without a definitive voice who possesses the keys that can ultimately validate, yeah, these are the, this is the correct list of councils, I don't see how you can adjudicate those disputes, right? And so it's just arbitrary otherwise. Um, so uh, now I think there's a tremendous amount of value in the Eastern patrimony of the Church, Orthodox or Catholic, uh, I'm really fond of a lot that I find in Orthodoxy. I'm fond of the liturgy. I'm really fond of the fathers. I'm, I'm fond of the, the, the theological and philosophical tradition. Uh, and so I, you know, I don't do a very good job of this, but what, when John Paul said the Church has to breathe with two lungs, I'm always, you know, have an eye to try to filling that, 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 that one lung that yeah. you know, I want to get full, you know, from the East. So it's, yeah. great, it's a great contribution to 
uh, to the faith and to the world, and, and it's a spirituality that needs to be cultivated, but I don't have to be orthodox to do that. And uh, regarding why do most converts choose Catholicism rather than orthodoxy? Is well, it because I don't have of any the... statistics right now on the, on the proportion of Protestant converts to orthodoxy versus Catholicism. I can't pass judgment on that. Okay. But I think those that choose the Catholic faith do so for the reasons I just uh, articulated. Very good. And uh, Deborah, thanks so much for watching us on YouTube on this Tuesday afternoon. In a moment, we're going to talk with Vanessa in Woodburn, Oregon, Cary in Illinois. Uh, and they, look at this, a line available for you. How about that? 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to explain eh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, and that would be, that would be a WSFI in the greater Chicagoland area, celebrating 10 years with us. They're on an FM station. They're on a great big AM station. Congratulations to Angela Tomlinson and everybody at WSFI from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Congratulations. All right, let's go to uh, Vanessa now, a first-time caller in Woodburn, Oregon, listening on the great modern-day radio. Hello, Vanessa. What's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you are not a Catholic and you take the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, is that a sin? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, first of all, the Church does not invite Protestants, generally, to partake of communion in the Catholic Church, uh, except in one rare circumstance, and that is if the Protestant in question is in danger of death mm. and has Catholic faith in the sacraments. So if the Protestant holds what the Catholics teach about the Eucharist to be true and is personally in great danger of death, then the Church would... It, would, would admit that Protestant to communion. But that's obviously very rare. Sure. Um, uh, uh, now, it sometimes happens that a Protestant might go to communion in the Catholic Church in ignorance of the Catholic teaching mm -hmm. and do so with a clean conscience and a good will. And I would say that such an act of communion would be inadvisable, not prudent, uh, but not necessarily sinful because that person acted in ignorance. They, they didn't do it deliberately. They weren't doing anything wrong on purpose. So the question is, why does the Catholic Church not admit Protestants normally to Holy Communion? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, let's get one misconception out of the way right away. Sometimes you'll hear Catholics say, well, you know, you can't go to Communion because you don't believe in the real presence. That's not the reason. That's not the reason. There are plenty of Catholics that believe in the real presence who shouldn't go to Communion. Right? That's, that, that's just not a sufficient explanation. Um, the reason that some Catholics themselves can't go to Communion is if they have knowledge of grave sin and they have not yet had access to sacramental confession, right? So St. Paul tells us that if we go to communion unrepentant, then we, we are doing ourselves no good. We're actually harming our spiritual lives, right? Um, and this, this is because Protestants, I mean, Catholics view what communion is, its very nature and function, differently from Protestants. For a Protestant, communion is just a reminder of God's undifferentiated uh, you know, inexhaustible goodwill towards us, that Christ died for us and loves us and wants to bring us to himself. Now, all those things are true, but there's something else for a Catholic going on, that communion is part and parcel of an act of sacrifice. Um, the, the very word host, which is what we mean, the word we use for the communion wafer, the very word host comes from the Latin word that means sacrificial victim, mm. right? 
And we think that in going to communion, we're, we're making an offering to God. And unlike the Old Testament sacrifices where you had to be ritually pure on the outside, the sacrifice of the New Covenant is a sacrifice of our interior life that's made, that's made pure in holiness. That's our essential act of worship. And so having that interior life adequately purified and cleansed and, and reconciled to God is necessary to make that act of sacrifice in a worthy manner, right? And, and uh, the church has authority to adjudicate that question, to determine whether or not you're worthy to go to communion. And the, the forum for doing that is the confessional. Catholic priests have the right and the duty to judge the consciences of Catholics, so if a Catholic presents himself for confession, the priest can form the judgment, this person is contrite, I, I absolve them, they can safely go to communion. Mm-hmm. Precisely because the Church does not judge non-Catholics. I want to get this really straight. Right? When we say you can't go to communion, we're not judging you. We're doing the opposite of judging you. The Church judges that some Catholics can go to communion and some Catholics cannot go to communion. She refuses to make that judgment about Protestants because they are not subject to the church's jurisdiction, because they don't have access, they don't avail themselves of the confessional, then the tribunal that judges their fitness for communion is not active. And so it's not safe for them to go to communion, right? Because this is an act of, of holy sacrifice. Yeah. What if a sinner presents himself for communion, uh, you know, with a, with, a, with, a, with a bad conscience and no desire to amend his life? And the church has had no ability to adjudicate that question. Well, we're not doing him any favors. We're not doing him any favors. Mm. Here's another reason why it's inadvisable for Protestants to go to communion in the Catholic Church. The act of communion in the Catholic Church um, is not just a testament to my personal relationship with Jesus. It is, in fact, a corporate act. It is an act that signals my belonging to a corporate body, namely the institutional Catholic Church. By going to communion, I am signaling my agreement and my adherence and my submission to the Catholic faith. I'm saying by my actions, I believe everything that this church teaches, and I submit myself to its authority. That's what the act means. That's not what it means for Protestants. Many times when a Protestant goes to communion, he simply means, this is me and my private Jesus. That's not what it means for a Catholic. It's not me and my private Jesus. It's me and the church that is his body. And so when a Protestant presents himself in the Catholic Church for communion, he is saying ritually, I believe the Catholic faith and submit to its authority. But why would we want to encourage people to testify against themselves in that way? If the Protestant does not believe the Catholic faith and does not submit to its authority, then it makes no sense for him or her to partake of the right that declares to the world, I agree with his faith and submit to its authority. Now, there is, an, there is a pernicious reason why a Protestant might want to go ahead and commune anyway. And that is because the Protestant wishes to insist that there is no substantial difference between Catholicism and other forms of Christianity. That he wants to, re- by his act of communion, wishes to signal his belief that his Christian faith is on a par with the Catholics and there's no substantial difference and Catholicism is just one denomination among many. In that case, what he is doing is not communing with Christ. He is registering a protest vote against Catholic theology. Mm. You follow me? Yeah. And so that would be disingenuous. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's for a Protestant to not receive communion in the Catholic Church does not mean that that Protestant is cut off from Jesus. He may very well have Jesus living in his heart, right? So we're not saying that you're going to go to hell or you're not close to the Lord. None of those things are implied, right? I've given the reasons why, right? 
Finally, I would say there might there might be a, a form of superstition in the Protestant's desire to receive communion in the Catholic Church if the Protestant thinks that by receiving communion just in virtue of the ritual act that I'm somehow like getting pumped up on Jesus' power, right? That just the fact of communion itself is sufficient to do that. And, and that would be a misunderstanding of the rite of communion because the Church teaches that Yes, there is supernatural power there, mm-hmm. but to access that, to make it effective in my life, I must have the proper disposition. And that proper disposition is f- Catholic faith towards the sacraments, believing everything the Church teaches, submission to its authority, and the proper desire to amend my life. But if you have all those things, if you have Catholic faith, if you have a desire to submit yourself to the Church's authority and to become holy in the way the Church teaches, then why not just go ahead and become Catholic? Absolutely. Vanessa, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Woodburn, Oregon this afternoon. Call to communion here on EWTN. We have a praise report from Angie watching on Facebook this afternoon. Angie says, my catechumen group of 70 were initiated into the church this weekend. I am so excited to be on this journey, and I ask that y'all pray for us. Thank you, Dr. Anders. Again, that's from Angie in North Carolina. Well, to take a phrase from my mother, hot diggity dog. Yeah. <laughs> That's great news. Thank you so much. Welcome home, Angie. Glad to have you on board here. Call to communion on EWTN. Diana's listening in Tampa on the TuneIn radio app. Hello, Diana. What's on your mind today? Thank you so much. Um, thank you, David. Yes, I have a question. I was talking to my husband last night, and something came up on the news about this guy who so many years after, uh, he confessed to his daughter that he was a, a bank robber. He was a thief. And nobody could know this. And then he died. He passed away, so his daughter was the same. This on the news. And so my husband said, I said, well, if he didn't pay here, somehow he's going to pay before. I just paid. I don't know. I said, he's going to pay at the end of his life. I mean, he's probably already in purgatory. I don't know. I just said it like that. And my husband was, uh, well, how did you know that? He, was, he probably repented. And may go to heaven because Jesus said that's the thief on the cross. He's going to paradise, blah, 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 you know, all we know. And I said, well, because you still have to cleanse yourself. He may have not repented. We don't know this. So we don't know the end, but that's what it is. So he said, well, he didn't say to the thief that he was going to purgatory on the cross. He didn't say he had to go through yeah. something. He said, well, he didn't have to. <laughs> yep, I, I can help you. I can totally help you. So there, there's a lot going on with St. Dismas. That's the name tradition has given to the thief on the cross. There's a lot going on with St. Dismas that our Protestant friends fail to notice. First of all, St. Dismas did not simply make an act of faith. See, the Protestant position is you can get saved by making an act of faith alone. That's not what Dismas did. He didn't simply make an act of faith. I want you to consider all that Dismas did when he was dying on the cross. First of all, Dismas made an act of tremendous humility. That's an act of virtue, right? By, by saying, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Um, uh, uh, Dismas bore witness to the authority of Christ before others, rebuking the thief who was criticizing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Dismas submitted both to divine providence and acceptance of the punishment meted out against him, saying, I'm getting what my deeds deserve. Now, Catholic position is, if a criminal accepts the judicial punishment against him Mm -hmm. as just, 
that that act of acceptance has expiatory value. It is, as it were, like a kind of purgatory. So it is very possible for a criminal who is in this in the penal justice system uh-huh. to experience that civil punishment um, in a way that makes it count as atonement for sin. Uh, now, if you do that, if you do penance in this life adequately, mm-hmm. you don't go to purgatory. And everything that we know about St. Dismas on the cross suggests that that's exactly what he did. He did make an act of faith, but he also made an act of humility. He also accepted the punishment against him as expiation for his sins. Uh, he bore witness to Christ. I mean, he did a ton. A and lot. It, and, it, and for that reason, Christ was able to say to him in justice, you will be with me today in paradise. It wasn't by faith alone. Okay. We hope that's helpful for you and for your husband as well, Diana. Thanks for checking in today in Tampa. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for EWTN News Nightly tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television with Tracy Sable. Some of the stories we're following, several university presidents are on Capitol Hill today facing questions about anti-Semitism on campuses. Plus, Israel pushes further into southern Gaza. You may have heard about that. Uh, They're now looking to uh, go for the whole country there. We're going to bring you the latest on the offensive and evacuation efforts. Again, that's EWTN News Nightly, tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. Sackett is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Sackett says, is it a mortal, mortal sin to vent, complain, or grumble to yourself about something or someone. It's technically not slander or gossip since you're you're really talking to yourself, not to somebody else. Yeah, thanks. So it wouldn't be the sin of slander or detraction or calumny, but it could very well be the sin of ingratitude. Oh. Right, could be the sin of ingratitude. Um, could be the sin of failing to accept divine providence. Uh, it's also uh, psychologically a bad idea. Right, so so if you consider, like, what is the end of psychotherapy? You go to your therapist. Um, generally speaking, it's to enable people to be able to accept their circumstances. You know, someone has a, a traumatic event, or maybe they they you know they they lose a leg or something, and they're uh-huh. they're, they're they're traumatized, but having a hard time adjusting. The point of psychotherapy is not to grow new legs is to help people cope with the situation that they have. That's right, just right. good, decent sense. It's like psychological yeah. well-being. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, said, don't desire for things to be other than the way they are. Desire for them to be the way they are, and you'll get on well, right? So um, it's it. there's also a mandate in Catholic moral theology to do the reasonable thing. Mm-hmm. Sin, St. Thomas Aquinas says, from one point of view, is nothing but an irrational act. To act irrationally is what sin means. So since we can tell in reason that it is in our psychological best interest to accept things that have happened to us and and not to rail against them purposelessly, um, I say on two grounds then we could conclude that it is potentially sinful. One, for being intrinsically irrational. Two, for uh, evidencing a lack of gratitude. Um, Do I grumble personally? to myself. Man, I am the world's chief grumbler. <laughs> I grumble constantly. It is a vice of mine that I work very—actually, well, I don't work very hard to eliminate, and I should work hard mm. to eliminate. 
And, uh, and for me, the grumbling often takes the form of kicking myself in the backside for things that I regret from the past. Oh, yeah. Right? Doesn't do me any good. Doesn't do me any good. So I'm sympathetic to the to the question, but I, I do think it's problematic. Sackett, thanks so much uh, for checking in uh, today on YouTube. Call to communion here on EWTN. Alicia Marie in Tallahassee called in. Uh, Elisa Marie says, Dr. Anders, I wasn't really raised with much religious education outside of a relationship with Jesus. So what is meant by the term Protestant? Yeah, so the term Protestant first emerged in the late 1520s to describe people that followed the theology of Martin Luther against the teaching of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church has been around for 2,000 years, uh, but there was a movement in the early 16th century in Germany, spearheaded by a monk named Martin Luther, to protest against certain Catholic doctrines and practices that eventually became a new ecclesial organization, a new kind of church. And so uh, you would probably know the offshoots of this movement in things like Presbyterianism, the Baptist Church, Maybe your, you know, the, the, the Bible church or the non-denominational church down your street or the mm-hmm. Episcopal church or the Methodist church. All of those are examples of what we call Protestant churches because they're an outgrowth of the protest movement uh, that was initiated by Martin Luther in, uh, in 1517. And then the term Protestant began to be applied to those who followed him in the, in the late 1520s, early 1530s. So it's, it's Christians that are not Catholics. And they're not Eastern Orthodox that tend to follow the teaching of Martin Luther or his associates. That's what the word Protestant means. There you go. And Alicia Marie, thanks so much for calling today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Interesting. (laughs) Kind of a tough question here from Derek. Derek says, I cannot help but think the Roman Catholic Church is disintegrating and collapsing under the same pressures that are causing what appears to me to be the same pressures that are causing the collapse of Western civilization. What are your thoughts about the state of society and the church? Yeah, thank you. So the the Catholic Church is actually growing um, uh, contemporaneously and quite substantially. Uh, but most of the growth is happening in Africa and Asia. So mm. they're, they're, the absolute numbers of Catholics just keeps going up and up and up, and uh-huh. the rate of growth is highest in those places. Um, it is having a difficult time in Europe, a uh, very difficult time in Europe, and, uh, and a pretty difficult time in North America. And, and we are, we're losing more Catholics than we're gaining in North America, and they've, you know, they've, they've lost them in, in, in Europe by and large. Uh, so there are problem areas, but Catholicism in general, the world over, is actually in a growth phase right now. Um, the you wanted to know if I thought the disintegration of the church, and I'll just limit that to Europe and North America, is related to the disintegration of Western civilization. Well, absolutely, hundred percent. I mean, since what the the history of Western civilization is is thoroughly Christianized and is wrapped up with Christian identity and the Catholic faith, yeah, the, the two kind of go hand in hand. As, as you dis, as you dissolve the institution of of Christian culture from Western civilization, and you don't fill them with something that meets the spiritual void that was left behind, yeah, you, you, you're you going to have that problem, sure. There you go. Derek, thanks so much for your email. Savannah's calling in. She is a first-time caller from Oklahoma, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hello, Savannah. Uh, what's on your mind today? Hi. I just had a question. Um, so my fiancé has not been to confession in over 10 years, and... I've been with him for the past five, and he is a cradle Catholic. I hope that's not an offensive term. I didn't. I wasn't raised Catholic, so that's just what they 
sure, sure. That's, <laughs> anyway. that's fine. That's fine. Um, and I converted two years ago from having no religion, growing up with no religion whatsoever. And so I've kind of taken the reins and said, okay, if we're going to do this and have a Catholic wedding, we're going to be fully Catholic. So I said that I would like him to go to confession before we get married. And so he's finally taking me up on that. And I am just afraid that he is unbeknownst to a lot of the sins that he has done purely because he doesn't, recognize them and doesn't have someone to i i don't want to say point them out but like oh i got you savannah let me ask you a couple questions if i could let me get make sure i get the story straight so you're you're a recent convert to catholicism your fiance uh, what i i missed this what's his relationship to the catholic faith at present did he become catholic He's a cradle Catholic. Okay, okay, he's a cradle Catholic, you're a convert, but he hasn't been overly enthusiastic about his faith, hasn't maybe learned it very well, hasn't practiced it very avidly. You're calling him back to a more vigorous practice of the Catholic faith. Okay, I got that. And uh, he's going to go to confession, you've asked him to, and you're worried that he maybe won't make a great confession. Here is my advice to you, right, both as a Catholic uh, thinker as well as a Catholic husband. The question of whether he makes a good confession or not should absolutely never concern you ever once in your entire marriage. For the sake of his soul and for the sanity of your home and for the integrity of your marriage, never tell him what to say in confession. Never tell him what to do in confession. Never interrogate him about what he said in confession. Never ask him about it. Never give him a hard time about it. Leave it entirely uncoerced. Here's why. Um, because if you do anything other than that, the odds that he will come to resent you or the sacrament are very high. You let the Holy Spirit and the priest do the job of speaking to his conscience. You do the job of loving him, all right, and just be a good wife to him. You practice your own faith with integrity and virtue and, and, and enthusiasm let it change you and make you wonderful and, and, uh, and, and, and long-suffering and patient and kind and all those things in 1 Corinthians 13 that we so often read at weddings. Let that be your character. Let's let judgmentalism not be one of those things, right? Um, you know, I made a decision in my own marriage and family years ago that I would never tell my kids or my wife ever once what to say in confession. And I'm, I'm so glad I stuck to that rule. And, and th- they all have kind of a different relationship. Everybody, everybody has their own relationship with the Church. Not sure. all my kids are like me. My wife's not like me. But some of them developed very healthy relationships with the sacraments on their own because they're their own people. They have their own consciences. Look, if you, if you drag him along to Mass, you know, if you get him back involved in the Catholic faith, the instruction, the catechesis, the Catholic culture, that will work on him. That's its job. Like it will, and, and remember the Catholic principle of gradualism. Gradualism means that you don't have to get him to perfect sanctity tomorrow, right? Um, just let him live as a Catholic. And, and the, the fact of being a Catholic person in communion with the Catholic Church and communion with the sacraments, <clears throat> that will have an effect on him. Um, it's possible to make a confession that is somewhat ignorant, that maybe is not the same confession that a better-formed person would make, but is made with sincerity and goodwill— um, maybe maybe this person doesn't have a full understanding of the Church's moral catechesis. That's okay. The fact that they're there with goodwill, and that's key, that they're really there with goodwill and a desire to do the right thing, goes a long way. And the priest, hopefully, will have the pastoral sensitivity to draw this individual along slowly. 
Now, true story, true story. I've talked to multiple priests, good, orthodox, faithful, devout, loving priests, uh-huh. who have shared with me something of their philosophy on this matter, and I've been indi- have indicated to me more than once uh, by more than one priest that they don't think it's their job in that moment to correct every single fault of the human personality, right? And that they recognize that people advance in the Catholic faith in stages, and the mere fact of showing up for some people is a tremendous triumph, a tremendous triumph. I know of converts and of reverts who have come into the Catholic faith, and their first confession was a terrible experience because they met with what they took to be a judgmental attitude. Mm. And for them, it was such a hurdle just to get in the door. And then rather than encouragement, what they got was criticism. And they said, I'm never going back. Right. So just let it be positive for him. His, his concession to go is tremendously important. It's valuable. It shows his love and devotion to you. Let that be enough for now. The growth will happen. Give it time. It could take decades. Give it time. Love that statement about, I'm probably getting it wrong, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Single step. Absolutely. Thank you, Savannah. Thank you for your call. Quick question from Carol. Listen to your show yesterday gave me pause. I thought final judgment at the end of time was to show us how our lives and actions affected those around us. The good we did and the wrong, all actions have repercussions, and to see how the choices we made was kind of like seeing a stone tossed in a lake and the ripples that it caused. Why is this incorrect? Well, uh, if if you're reconciled to God and your life is characterized by virtue and charity, which uh-huh. is what it means to be sanctity, then uh, then the final judgment may very well, in your case, be a celebration. Maybe it's a congratulation. Maybe it's praise, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the purpose is not going to be to make you feel bad for all the bad things that you did. Presumably, you've already done that through the act of contrition, right? If you've gone to confession in the past and you were contrite for your sins— you knew they were wrong and hurtful, and you were sorry, and you're forgiven, well, there and you you've go. done penance. Yeah, all that. Well, thank you so much uh, for your email, Carol. Glad we could uh, close on a uh, very high note there. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this show Monday Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can check out the podcast anytime you wish by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio, then look for the word that says podcast. That's all you have to do. And uh, looking forward to our next visit. Hope that you're with us on the the, uh, Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. And uh, have a wonderful Advent as well. God bless.